week we talked about wives being subject to your husbands. And several husbands came up to me this morning and felt like it would be good to redo that one from last week. Just a sense of, you know, repetition is the mother of all learning. So let's get that one done one more time. But more women came up to me with the uh, anxiousness of what I was going to say about men. So women went out. And I won't repeat what I said. Of course, you can, you know, I think, husbands, if you download it and put it on a CD last week's sermon and give it to your wife, that's probably not a great idea. Um, you might, you know, ask me to do it for you. Uh, chapter three, verse one through verse seven. I'm going to read that. And we're also going to go back to Genesis chapter two. Genesis chapter two, verse twenty one. So you need to find that as well. Genesis chapter 2, verse 21, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Let's stand together as we read God's word. And I'll begin begin with Genesis chapter 2, verse 21. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with his flesh. And the rib that the Lord had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called woman because she has was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Then in Genesis chapter, I mean, sorry, first Peter chapter three. Likewise, wives be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold or the putting on of clothing. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands. Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. You may be seated and let's take a moment just to hear that are new and um, want just to say we, we value the word of God above anything that I would say, and just in a way to set that up as we read the Word, and then we just all sit before the Word itself. And hopefully I can shine some light on it, but it's it's more valuable than anything that I'm going to say. And we like to create that space just by that silence to let everybody know that's the case. Well, today's uh, message is important for every married couple here, uh, but... Really important for everybody here because it's what you should see in marriages. It's how you could encourage a marriage, even if you're not married. And especially if you're a young person and you're um, getting towards that age and stage, it's helpful to know, you know who you should be and also 
who the person you should be marrying should also be. What should you be looking for in that regard? In the summer of 2010, Ellen McCarthy wrote an article in the Washington Post. And the title of the article was this, The Marriage Myth. Why do so many couples divorce? And in the article, uh, she talks about a movement that is trying to promote healthy marriages. And this movement asked people who were divorced this question. What if the truth was that you didn't marry the wrong person? What if you just didn't know how to be married? What if the truth is that you didn't marry the wrong person, but the truth is you really just didn't know how to be married? It's a good question. And then McCarthy quotes a decade-long study about marriages, and she says this, and I quote, The study found that all couples, those who are happily married into their rocking chair years, and those who divorce before they hit their fifth anniversary, listen, they disagree more or less the same amount. It found that they all argue about the same subjects, money, kids, time, and sex, chief among them. And that for the average couple, 69% of those disagreements will be irreconcilable. A morning bird and a night owl won't ever fully eliminate their differences, nor will a spendthrift and a penny pincher. But what distinguished satisfied couples from miserable ones was how creatively and constructively they managed those differences. And then they sort of have this conclusion. If every couple has about the same number of disagreements, people who leave a marriage because of irreconcilable differences are likely to find themselves arguing just as much in their next marriage. What the study was finding undermined the basic principle driving romantic relationships in America, which is that it's about finding the right person. It's about finding your soulmate. And then everything will be fine. That's the big myth. Yes, it's important to choose a spouse wisely, these studies would say, yet it's equally important to be skilled in the art of conducting a marriage. So let me just repeat that one line. What the study was finding undermined the basic principle driving romantic relationships in our culture. And that is that if you find the right person, if you find your soulmate, then everything will be just fine And the study was concluding, of course, we would have known it before the study. That's a big myth. That's a big myth. So many people have bought in to that myth. Most of us know friends who got married and a few years later, they started having significant disagreements. And they began to say, well, maybe I've made a big mistake. Maybe I haven't found my soulmate. And instead of doing the hard work of actually working on their marriage, they decided or they concluded that their marriage just was going to be a wreck. And so they moved on and they moved on thinking there's someone out there that is my soulmate, that person I won't have these kinds of disagreements with And, of course, they find much of the same because they've never changed and they don't understand they're going to have the same number of arguments, really, with the next person. Our pastor this morning is the Apostle Peter. And he has been married himself. So he's aware, he's well aware of the conflict that can happen in a marriage. He knows the hard work that's available or needed for a marriage. 
And really from the beginning, as I said, in chapter 2, verse 13, Peter's been like this skilled teacher. He's been trying to help those people who are trusting in Christ how to operate in different authoritarian structures that you're going to find yourself in. How do you operate in a, in a situation where you're a Christian, you're, a, a, you're part of the people of God, you're part of this royal priest, this, this chosen people? How do you live in that situation underneath an oppressive government? How would you do that as a Christian man or a woman living in a, in a place where you were underneath a boss that was unjust? And Peter talks about that. And then he comes to how do we do that in the course of marriage? And the things that I think specifically we have to remember here is that uh, wives are required. We see in chapter 3, verse 1, to be subject to their husbands. Husbands... Verse 7, are required to understand and honor their wives, not because their husbands or wives are deserving. You know, you just notice in the text, there's no prerequisites. If your wife does this, then husbands, you would honor them. If your husband does this, then wives, you submit. No, we, we do those things not because... The people are deserving. We do it because of our allegiance to Christ. That's why we do those things. The reason we as citizens would live up underneath a government, even though it's not uh, something that we would choose to do or they make different decisions, is not because the government's deserving. It's because we don't serve the government. Ultimately, we serve the Lord. And if that's what the Lord asks of us, then we do that. You see, one of the main difference in a, in a differences in a Christian marriage is that the two people getting married have a source of authority outside of their own desires. So often in a marriage, what your authority is, is how I feel at this particular moment. That's driving my actions. That's driving my attitudes. And in a Christian marriage, both people are coming saying, yes, we have these desires, but we have an authority that's above these desires. It's beyond these desires. And it's informing us of how we should live and act and, and react. So wives are called to submit. Husbands are called to honor whether the person is deserving or not. And the primary motivation in marriage is to do what's right in the sight of the Lord. You see, that, that truth, especially if you're, you're at the age that you're thinking about getting married, that truth has to be a bedrock of your beliefs. That as you enter into this marriage, as you think about marrying somebody, you understand the real bedrock of your motivation towards that person is not the person. The bedrock of your motivation is I'm serving the Lord. And I will do what he has called me to do. And even if that means lining up underneath somebody or honoring somebody that is less than perfect, I'm not doing it because of their actions or attitudes. I'm doing it because of Christ's love for me. That's a huge, important point to understand in terms of a starting point in your marriage. Because when you get married, your desires at some point will go in an opposite direction. Your spouse's desires will go in an opposite direction. But you don't go in an opposite direction. You keep going in the same direction because this, this grace, this love is constantly filling your life so you can keep moving forward even if the person is coming in a different direction 
from you. This morning, we're turning our full attention to Peter's instructions to husbands. And you can see the outline. Look at verse 7. It's very easy to see. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So we have two pieces of instruction. Number one, husbands, you're supposed to live with your wife in an understanding way. And number two, you're supposed to honor her. So those are two very obvious pieces of instruction. Then then there's a reminder to husbands, your wife is an heir to the grace of life. Your wife is a co-heir with you in the grace that is brought to us by Christ. And finally, Peter ends with a warning. One of the reasons you're doing this, husbands, is so that your relationship, that your, your, your vertical relationship, your prayer relationship with the Lord wouldn't be hindered. So let's just look at those each in turn. First, instructions. Live with your wife in an understanding way, or some of your translations may say according to knowledge. And I think Peter has two things in in mind here as he says, live with your wife according to knowledge. Live with your wife in an understanding way. Number one, husbands, you have to live with your wives according to the knowledge of God's purposes and plans for marriage. You have to know what God's plan for marriage is. You have to understand that and you have to live according to his understanding of marriage. So Peter is in a first century congregation, largely the congregation that's there before him are people who have come out of a secular environment and they brought with them. Hey, this is how you're supposed to be married. It's like my parents. It's like how I've seen out in the culture. It's just supposed to be like that. And, and Peter's coming in and saying, hey, guys. You have the world's playbook on marriage, and I want you to go ahead and throw that out. There's really not a good play in that playbook, so let's throw that out. And God actually designed marriage. He actually has a playbook for marriage, and we're going to implement those plays. We're going to run in that direction. So it's 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 incumbent upon husbands. It's required of husbands to say, I first have to have an understanding of what God wants in marriage, and then I can begin to run those plays in my marriage. So just one example of God's playbook for marriage. Genesis chapter 2. Turn back that there with me. Genesis chapter 2. And we could turn to Ephesians 5. We could turn to a number of different places, but this is just one, one piece of God's playbook for marriage. Genesis chapter 2. This is the first wedding ceremony. This is said at probably most of the weddings that you go to. And I just want you to notice in these few verses the order that God has unfolded here, and the order is important for us to recognize. Number one, verse 22, God brought Adam to Eve. Or brought Eve to Adam. Sorry. You're going, that's a different translation. But this is, this is the first wedding ceremony. Adam, so to speak, is standing up here. And he's waiting. He's just, he's noticing a scar on his side. And he's, he's, he hasn't found any suitable helper. And God is bringing him. He's not going to find it. God's bringing him, God's walking down the aisle with his daughter. Isn't that a great picture? He's bringing his daughter to Adam. 
So the first thing we see here is, is this, this picture of God bringing the bride to the husband. This is the first marriage ceremony. And, and it doesn't sound very good in English, but the very first recorded human words in the Bible are Adam singing to his wife at their marriage ceremony. Now, man, I'm not recommending this probably for most of you all, that when your wife comes down the aisle, you just break into song. I don't think that would have worked for me, and I suspect it wouldn't have worked for most of you all. But he breaks out, this is bone of my bone. I mean, I guess in Hebrew it sounded really great. And it worked for Adam. So, hey, if it works, buddy, keep going. But he breaks out into the song. So this is the moment. The, the, the bride is coming down. The, the, the father is ushering the, his daughter down. And number two, then Adam takes the bride in verse 24. And at that moment, God makes a declaration. He, he's helping everyone see from this point forward. He's elevating this union to be more important than any other earthly union. Because the man and the woman make permanent, definite steps away from their previous families. It doesn't mean they disregard them. It doesn't mean you don't go back and talk to them. But there is a, he's saying now, this union now is more important than any other union you're going to have on earth. This union. You're stepping away from your family. You're creating one new family. And he's declaring that here in this first marriage ceremony. And then third, verse 24, they become one flesh. Which means a number of things, but it particularly means sexual intimacy. So the bride is brought down. The bride and the groom get married in a ceremony and they, and they permanently step away. And then after that moment, this marriage, this Christian marriage is consummated in sexual intimacy. That's the order. That's the playbook. Now, we live in an upside down world. Most of the things that we think are good, God goes, yeah, that's not good. I want to be first. Okay, be last. And so we live in an upside down world. So we shouldn't be surprised if we go outside of these walls and find that this this plan, this three point playbook plan is upside down. And we all know it. Do we not? The first thing you do is you have sex. And if that's working out, then let's go ahead and move in together. And if those two things work out, then let's get married. See, that's the world's playbook. Nobody's surprised by that. But see, if you come into the church, if you come into Christianity, you've got to throw that playbook out. You have to say God has a different design. He has a different series of plays. The, the first thing you do is that the father brings the bride to the groom. You, you say, this is the person I'm going to spend my life with. This is the commitment I'm making to them. I'm permanently stepping away from my parents, and you're permanently stepping away from your parents. And we, before the Lord, we're, we're consummating this marriage both verbally and then later physically. That's the playbook. Now, I realize just in saying that, it can sound like, Paul, was that your dinosaur out in the parking lot? I mean, is that what you're still riding to church? 
And I would say, you know, when you want to follow after Christ, according to many passages, but 1 Peter 2, 11, you're going to just look like a foreigner in this world. So, yeah, that's my dinosaur. And I would say not only on this topic, but many other topics, if you're here and you're thinking about Christianity, you're sort of circling around at the edges. Let me let me go ahead and say, if you're not willing and ready to look like a foreigner in this culture, then you're going to be all uphill in Christianity. It's not only how you get married, it's how you treat other people, it's how you spend your money, it's how you spend your time. It's almost every area of your life It's going to look opposite than the world. And if you're not prepared to say, hey, I'm a Christian and I'm following a different playbook and I know that's going to look like upside down to my friends or upside down to my family or upside down to my work uh, friends, then you're going to have a hard time following Christ because it's going to look upside down a lot of the time. And so one of the things that we have to establish here right from the beginning is that you don't have sex, move in, and get married. You get married, you step away from your family, and you have sex. That's God's playbook. And that's one of the things that we have to understand that's different from the world. So we need to take seriously what God has to say in that regard. The the second thing I would say here about Peter's Saying to husbands, husband, you have to understand your wife or you have to live in an understanding way. You have to acquire or according to knowledge is the second meaning is you you have to be an excellent student of your wife. So, So men, you're required to be an excellent student of God's word. He's got a playbook for marriage. You can't guess at it. You can't say, well, you know, Dr. Phil said, and that sure sounded good to me, and so I'm giving that a shot. No, this is the playbook. You're the husband. You're the leader. You have to be a student. You have to get a good degree on God's playbook for marriage. And then the second thing you have to do is you have to be a good student of your wife. You have to understand that she has a playbook, and you have to understand what that playbook is. And so... On July 18th, 1987, at 2 o'clock in New Jersey, I got married to Nancy Cochran Phillips. And at that moment, at 2 o'clock on that afternoon, I signed up to constantly work on a Ph.D. in NCP. How about that? I worked on that. That's, you know, you wonder what I do during the week? That kind of stuff right there. Get that everywhere. But that's what it was. You see, when I I stood here and she came up, what I was saying, whether I realized it or not, I was saying, I'm going to work on my Ph.D. on her for the rest of my life. And, men, it doesn't end in five years. Because about every five years, something happens with your wife, and it's like a new ball game. So, yes. Thank you, brother. I hear you. It's a married man after five years. Yes, it changes. 
And you have to constantly say, I'm getting my Ph.D. in Nancy. And you, you say, I'm getting my Ph.D. in whoever you're married. You have to be an excellent student of God's Word so you're running the right place. And then you've married somebody who's uniquely grafted to you. And they're, they're different than any other person. And you have to get a Ph.D. in that person. You have to be a lifelong student of your wife. Now, just just picture for a moment, because I think every person here, no matter how young you are, you can picture what is the best student in the class? What are their habits like? You're in a classroom and, and you can almost immediately say who the best students are. Can you not? They sit up front. They sit up straight. They're not falling asleep. When the teacher speaks, they're they're writing stuff down. They ask a lot of questions. They're not in the back falling asleep. This is these things are the, the, the student does all the outside reading assignments. And then when 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 they're alone, they review all the material. So when the test comes, they're ready, they're prepared. That's that's pretty much the habits of every good student. They sit up front, they pay attention, they ask questions, they take notes, they do outside reading. And when they're alone, they review the information, they commit the information to memory so that when the test comes, they're ready for the test. That's that's the habits of a good student. That's that's the habits of a of a good husband as well. And and I would ask you men, what, what kind of student of your wife are you? Do you sit up front? Are you paying attention? When when she talks, are you fully engaged or are you falling asleep? Or are you reading? Do, Do you ask a lot of questions or do you prefer to make statements? Do you commit to memory those things which tell her, hey, I know you. You don't have to tell me again. I know you. When you tell me once, I'm writing it down. And I'm writing it down. I'm committing it to memory. So when it comes back around, I'm ready. I know you. I'm a good student of you. Would she know that you're a good student of her? Would your kids see you as a good student of your wife? You see, at least half the time when Nancy comes to me, and now Morgan, that she's a a young woman, when they when they come to me and they ask me questions or they present some kind of issue to me, at least half the time, maybe more than half the time, really what they want is understanding. And what I want to give is an answer. And so they come and they they're saying, hey, here's an issue. Here's a problem. Here's a trial. Here's a frustration. Here's a fear. And I have the problem solution mindset. So I'm listening and then I'm ready to give the three-point plan as soon as they're done. And so in the beginning of our marriage, Nancy would come to me with a problem seeking understanding. And I would answer the problem with a three-point solution. And frequently I was able to offer a solution before she even finished articulating what the problem was. I mean, it was amazing. And, and she would sit there in the middle of this conversation frustrated. And I would sit there thinking, honey, do you realize what you have in me? What a gift. For 50 years, you can come to me with any problem. 
And before the words are out of your mouth, I can provide a three-point solution to the problem. What, Honey, let's go to bed. I mean, come on. I mean, this is awesome. This is a joy, is it not? What, what a gift for you to have married somebody like that. I mean, you see how much understanding women I lacked. See, see you lack that. You lack, I mean, whether that's the way you, you, your operation is or it's another way, but oh, the amount that I had to learn to really understand, to live according to knowledge of my wife and now my daughter. What are they coming and asking for? How is it that I can best respond to to meet their needs and so husbands are you a good student are you working on your phd do you know her hopes and fears or desire desires and discouragements do you know her daily schedule do, do you know what, what your wife wants emotionally mentally sexually uh, do, do you know how your strengths do you know how your weaknesses do you know how you handle finances and how you make these decisions? Do you know how that affects your wife? Are you aware when you walk in the kind, the kind of personality you bring, the kind of decision-making you bring, the, the kind of strengths you have, the kind of weaknesses you have? Do you understand the effect that's having on your wife? You, you have to have a Ph.D. in your wife. You have to understand that. You have to know how she's going to feel about those kinds of things. That's your, your role. And so I would, I would ask, I would plead for every husband here to have the courage to sit down with their wife today and say, what are some, some better ways I can understand you? And when she, if she has the courage to say them back, I would not immediately offer any uh, analysis. That probably wouldn't go over well. I would just try to receive and write them down and ask for clarification rather than, oh, yeah, but, you know, I do that when mm, not, that's not going to be good. Second thing we see, second piece of instruction is honor your wife as the weaker vessel. Now, this would have been an incredibly explosive statement for Peter in his culture. Because in his culture, and unfortunately, in some places in our own world, women are treated like slaves. And that's not a problem in the mind of Peter's culture and some other cultures. Peter understands that the weaker vessel means that men are, by and large, physically stronger than women. And Peter is giving this unusual instruction, this different instruction than the world gives. And he's saying, you know, men, you can't live according to the world's ways. You've got to live in a different way. And you can't use your physical advantage to demean or suppress or enslave women in any way. You can't, you can't use your brute force to, to press down. Instead, you want to use your brute force to honor and lift up. It's the very opposite of the way the world would approach it. The world's saying, use your power, use your position to suppress. And Peter's saying, and God is saying, use your power and your, use your position to get up underneath and lift up. And, and I don't know, you, any Les Mis fans here, you've either seen the play or 
Anybody? I'm just talking. To, okay, I'm talking to ten of you. Okay, good. And so I'm just using this illustration for those ten. But I just saw the movie last week. I liked the play, and it's such a great moment in the movie where where Jean Val, what's his name? Jean Valjean, right? Okay, Jean Valjean. He's sort of the hero of the movie. And Fontaine, right? Is that how you say her name? She's the the weak person, right? And it, there's a point in the movie where where Fontaine is this just sort of frail uh, young woman who who because of cer- certain circumstances she's fallen into prostitution and this really slime ball posing as a man is pressing down on her. He's using his position. He's using his power to have his way. And at that moment in the movie, she cries out sort of for help. And who comes in? Jean Valjean. And he comes in. And you remember, he picks her up. And and all this chaos around. And you can't do that. Blah, blah, blah. Pays no attention to it. And he takes her and he lays her down. And he makes sure she's cared for And at that moment, every woman in the theater wants to be married to Jean Valjean. And every man wants to be Jean Valjean. I mean, you, I don't like that name personally a lot, but I mean, I mean, just for the day, if Nancy would have called me Jean Valjean, I'd be like, yeah. But you see, you see what he was doing? He had position. He had power. And one man was using his position and power to take advantage. And somebody else came in, somebody from the outside and said, I'm going to use my position. I'm going to use my power to pick you up and to get up underneath you. And so, husbands, that's your role. And I want you to see for sure That when you're doing that, when you take your exalted position, when you take your greater power and you come down to a person who's enslaved or demeaned or suppressed and you use your power to get up underneath that person, especially your wife, and you bring them to health and safety, do you know what you look like to the world? You look like Jesus. And in a marriage ceremony, the bride is the church and the man is Jesus. And so, men, your kids are finding out about Jesus by looking at how you treat your wife. And they're going to be asking if a God who has all this power could actually get down and pick up some slime ball like me. And when you do that with your wife, especially when it's difficult, I mean, anybody can do it when it's easy. But when your wife is just defiantly moving in the opposite direction and you use your power and your position to say, honey, get over here. That's what God's like in the eyes of your kids. But if you chase after her and you love her and when she falls down, you pick her up, then they find out what Jesus is really like. And so husbands you have such a, a great and powerful evangelistic tool in your belt 
that you can pull out all the time for your kids and for your community, for your church, to say, that man, he uses his position, he uses his power to get up underneath his wife and bring her to safe places. And that's what Jesus is like. You have, you have that chance, men. Women, if you're not married, that's, you want to marry Jean Valjean. Uh, yeah, amen. <laughs> if he's not like that in the courting relationship, no chance it's going to happen when you get married. So we we're going to honor our wives. Do you honor your wife, men? Interestingly enough, Sarah was used as an example for women just in the few cha- few verses beforehand. And her name in Hebrew means princess. And she so might just ask men, do you treat your wife like a princess? If you do, it won't be hard for Sarah to submit to Abraham. It won't be hard for Nancy to submit to Paul. She should because she's doing it out of her love for the Lord, not her love for me. But if you're treating her like a princess, it just makes that relationship so, so much easier. One reminder quickly, Peter wraps up his discussion on submission in the marriage relationship by reminding the husbands that your wife is an heir with you in the grace of life. Your wife is an heir with you in the gospel. All the, the spiritual privileges, all the internal, eternal importance that you have, she has. There's no, no different standing. The Apostle Paul says it this way, You're all children of God. For all you are baptized into Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. All of you are, are one in Christ. And so Peter's reminding of a, us of that, of that eternal reality. So that, w- that would inform how we begin to think and act towards each other today. And finally, a, a pretty important and stern warning here. So that your prayers may not be hindered. And I put this quote on the front of your bulletin. It's from uh, Wayne Grudem. And he wrote this. So concerned is God that Christian husbands live in an understanding and loving way with their wives that he interrupts his relationship with them when they are not doing so. No Christian husband should presume to think that any spiritual good will be accomplished by his life without an effective ministry of prayer. And no husband may expect an effective, effective prayer life unless he lives with his wife in an understanding way, bestowing honor on her. Husbands, when you shut down communication with your wife, God shuts down communication with you. Do you remember when, uh, I can't remember exactly where it is in the Bible, but the the person brings a sacrifice, brings a gift. Do you remember that? And the Lord says, no, 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 you've got something against somebody. I can't receive that until you go make a horizontal relationship right. Take, take that gift back. 
This has no value to me. Paul, if you can't work on this horizontal relationship, when you get down on your knees and pray, you know, nothing's happening there. You're, you're just wasting your time. Get up. Go make it right with your wife. Why is that? Why, why would that be? Well, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. You're the picture. You're the model. And I don't want that model to be tainted. So I don't want people to, you think, oh, you're all holy, but you can't have a relationship with your wife. That's not true. So husbands, do you, do you, do you understand the word of God? Is it informing you how you live every aspect of your life, but specifically how you're living with your wife? Do you have a Ph.D. in your wife? Does she think that? Especially when it's difficult, do you get to use your position, to use your power to get up underneath? To bend down and not press down. Do you understand that the way you have a conversation and relationship with your wife has a direct correspondence to the way you have a relationship or a conversation with God? Let me close by just reading part of a poem. Lena Lanthrop wrote this, and I thought it would be helpful, and then I'll pray for us. The title of the poem is A Woman's Question. Do you know you have asked for the costliest thing ever made by the hand above? A woman's heart and a woman's life and a woman's wonderful love. Do you know you have asked for this priceless thing as a child might ask for a toy? Demanding what others have died for with the reckless dash of a boy. You require a cook for your chicken and beef. I require a far greater thing. A seamstress, you're wanting for socks and shirts. I look for a man and a king. I'm fair and young, but that may fade from this soft young cheek one day. Will you love me then mid the falling leaves as you did among the blossoms of May? This, I think, is the most powerful line. Is your heart an ocean so strong and true I may launch my all on its tide? A loving woman finds heaven or hell on the day she is made a bride. I require all things that are grand and true, all things that a man should be. If you give this all, I would stake my life to be all you demand me to be. If you cannot do this, a laundress and a cook you can hire and little to pay. But a woman's heart and a woman's life are not to be won that way. Let's pray together.